Welcome to the Alien Probe Podcast. It's Saturday, March 2nd, 2024. I'm Doug, and joining me again today, it's been a couple weeks, Deb. It has. You've had a couple weeks off. Yep. We've had some guests on. Thanks to Matt. You know, Matt Matt did a great job, you know, he, he does awesome. Um, today we're going to do part six for your fun and enjoyment <laughs> of... Uh, George Adamski and Desmond Leslie's book, Flying Saucers Have Landed, and they they have landed, according to them, and most mostly George. So um, we're going to jump right into the book, if you want to listen to the earlier parts of the book. And, and one of the reasons we're discussing this is that, you know, it's, you know, theorized that, you know, there are flying saucers. That's... A lot of people have seen them. I have not. Have you seen them? No. You haven't seen one? No. Heard a lot of people talk about it. But, you know, they're there. And one of the, um, there was, you know, we listened to a podcast this week about, and I'll just mention it, that um, this gentleman uh, is stating that um, I should probably, you know, look that up to see who it is. You know, um, he stated that the these flying saucers are actually ours. And uh, it was Jesse Michaels, uh, American Alchemy, and I would definitely, um, and someone, the man who built UFOs for the CIA, not Bob Lazar. Hmm. And um, he talks about uh, Thomas um, Townsend uh, Black, I think it is. What is he talking about? Well, I'm not prepared today. Thomas Thompson Townsend. Um, so, that's it. I butchered that completely. So yes, we will just. Uh, my apologies, but if just you check his podcast and you you can check it out. So uh, we're gonna start with the Viminas. I was still musing on people for those that are left listening. <laughs> You're done. We're done. Should we start over? No. Okay. And what's the fun in that? <laughs> We're still musing on the possible sources of power. And this is George. This is. As though George of Damsky is is doing the discussing. I was still musing on the possible sources of power when a very strange document came into my hands. A book written nearly ten years before the Wright brothers had made their first flight. It described in some detail a type of flying disc or aerial boat used by the race whose descendants left behind them the mighty pyramids of Mexico and Egypt. The vast stones of Tuamanico, Tuamanico, and Saxahuman, is that it? Um, you got that? Yeah. The 1,800-ton blocks at Baalbek, the sacred tablets of Nicole, and the sublime secret stanzas of Asia. Whoa. In this book were terms and expressions I had never heard of before. Terms like etheric force and akasha, akasha 
It was an intriguing book, and while reading it, I sensed something familiar. Certain characteristics were described there which tallied almost identically with the United States Army's flying saucer reports of today. Yeah, and I began to think and wonder. Uh, here's the significant passage. The author, Scott Elliott, says, Atlantean uh, methods of locomotion must be recognized as still more marvelous for the airship or flying machine, which Keeley in America and Maxim in this country are now trying to produce in 1895. So I guess they are talking about it from the past. Was then accomplished as fact. It was not at any time a common means of transport. The slaves, the servants, and the masses who labored with their hands had to trudge along the country tracks or travel in rude carts with solid wheels drawn by uncouth animals. The airboats may be considered as the private carriage of those days, or rather the private yachts, if we regard the relative number of those who possessed them, for they must have... Oh. been at all times <laughs> difficult and costly to produce i need a i need a third person. my cue my cue card person is <laughs> as quick as he thing. could be usually you complain that i move it too fast well usually <laughs> you move it in the middle of my <laughs> reading you can see it come on remember bad eyes <laughs> there were not as a, as a rule built to accommodate many persons numbers were constructed for only two some allowed for six or eight passengers in the latter days, when war and strife had brought the golden age to an end, battleships that could navigate the air had to a great extent replaced the battleships at sea. Having naturally proved for more powerful engines of destruction, these were constructed to carry as many as 50 and in some cases even up to 100 fighting men. And this is Atlantean 5,000 years ago we're talking about. You know. so w. Scott Elliott, The Story of Atlantis. Too much already has been written concerning the famous lost continent to argue here the pros and cons of its existence. As geology knows, Atlantis is merely the name given of one of a long series of former land masses, in this case the one directly preceding our own. It seems reasonable to suppose that what is now the floor of the Pacific Ocean will in a millennia hence be the home of future races who will have many tales to tell concerning the lost Ira or Eurasia. Certainly the Earth's strata show that the land on which we live has been an ocean bed, not once, but many times. What you doing? I'm trying to look. Okay, go ahead. Well, if they can see that you're not looking at them. Oh, okay. Anyone well, interested? I, I'm researching something while you're talking. Anyone interested in Atlantis? They can see that, yeah. For its I'm own sake. <laughs> Just playing on your phone. Should no, I'm looking for that, that title name that I can't think of. Donnelly, Lewis Spence, Scott Elliott, and its history in the esoteric works of ancient India, South America, and Egypt. Also, Secret Cities of South America by Wilkins, built before the flood, and particularly letter number XSII, that's 23. Yeah, what is that? Well, it's 23B, but in the Mahatma letters to A.P. Sinet, to name a few, there's no B in, <laughs> there's no... <laughs> in Roman There's numerals. some grammatical errors okay. in this book, I warn you. It's it spell-checked. I had to change many things. But anyway, okay. it's Thomas Townsend Brown. There you go. And here he is. Here he is. Should put his picture up there. Anyway, he mm -hmm. develops anti-gravity. The, the, the story goes. He developed 
anti-gravity through reverse engineering of German. Um, actually, the, yeah, we're going to jump around a little bit. Of the German um, Hanabu. You're going to... UFOs that were in Nazi Germany. Did you see your people developed that? Oh, that's good. I don't know if that's real. Anyway, <laughs> that's the story. He brought that back through Project Paperclip, and um, we continued the uh, the the reverse engineering of that. Um, not necessarily an extraterrestrial UFO was, um, and then further developed by us. And then that's what—that's the story that we're seeing now. And it's we're taking the the aliens out of the equation, and it's, it's kind of sad to think that because so we all gonna, hope gonna ruin your whole life. Well, it, well, it's a lot of things. It's um, you know, there's another theory that they're you know the reptilians or the you know they have the the ones that look like insectoids. Um, they actually the greys are actually slaves to them. They're autom greys are automatons or not? They have no personality. That blows our Serpo story because, remember, they had yes. feelings. Yes. Some of them did. And uh, that these uh, these insectoids actually eat, you know, they're like six feet tall and they're from underground. These things have always been here. They developed underground or developed above Earth. They went inside the Earth and then that's where they kind of reside now. And then they pop out and they, the that's why... What's that? Are they down there with the cicadas just waiting for What's a the, cicada? Those big insects that come that live in the ground and then come out every seven years. Probably, but they're out all the time. Okay. And they're eating children. Actually they of all the millions of children that go missing and they're never recovered, that's the the other theory. I know. It's I know. <laughs> he rolls your eyes. It's like no. It can't the be. The insects are eating The kids them. are somewhere. Well, they don't actually eat them. They inject stuff into their body and then they suck the juice out. You know, so. so there's little skin bags of children. I, that's somewhere. the thought I had. I said, well, what are they doing with. The skin. You know, what are they doing with what's left? They probably bury it in the ground or whatever. I don't know. I know it's a sick thought and, you know, we don't really want to believe that that's happening. But, you know, it kind of blows the whole extraterrestrial theory away. And, um, you know, it's so it's almost like it's two different things. I don't even know if these things are flying spaceships. I mean, it's just like two different stories that prove that don't prove, but that kind of state that, you know, it's, um, you know, what we've thought throughout the years is kind of completely different. It's weird. I don't know, though. Who knows what's real? As I always state, I don't know what really nobody happened. knows. The material of which, anyway, uh, back to the story. <laughs> the material of which the the Vaminovs or airboats, uh, that's what, um, I looked that up, that's just their name for, you know, something that flies through the air, were constructed with, uh, was either wood or metal. The earlier ones were built of wood. Uh, the boards used be, were being excessively thin. But the injection of some substance, which did not add materially to the weight, while it gave... Uh, leather-like toughness provided the necessary combination of lightness and strength. And they're talking about ancient um, saucers. And mm -hmm. there was, there's stories of some of the witnesses that have actually touched the craft. They said it felt kind of leathery, which is kind of interesting. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's something that, it's that they found. They found one of these things. They, we didn't build that. Maybe we found that. So it's hard to, you know. So again, they're not extraterrestrial necessarily. 
When metal was used, it was generally an alloy, two white-colored metals and one red one entering into its composition. The result was white-colored like aluminum and even lighter in weight. Over the rough framework of the airboat was extended a large sheet of this metal, which was then beaten into shape and electronically welded when necessary. There yeah, I mean, that's... Ancient it, welders. Uh, yeah, and, and today it's kind of like, well, how do you know if a flying saucer is, you know, one of ours or if it's, you know, one that is mm -hmm. not one of ours, let's just say, at this point. Um, they say the ones that are not ours or they're molded like a 3d printer would make as opposed to the big solder strip yeah in the middle. and rivets yeah you know but i don't know even know about that i mean you know but whether built of wood or metal the outside surface was apparently seamless and perfectly smooth okay and they shone in the dark as if coated with aluminum luminous paint um vamina vimenum um, it's a measure out and can measure out traverse a course, a car celestial, a flying chariot, self-propelled and self-moving, a flying palace. Flying palace. That sounds nice. Probably copper, magnesium, aluminum, according to some alloys discovered and analyzed from ancient Atlantean city sites. In shape, they were boat-like, but they were invariably decked over for when at full speed, it could not have been convenient even if safe for any on board to remain on the upper deck. Ah, They're going to fly off. Just hold on. Be like those wing walkers that used to walk on the planes. Yeah, it kind of seems like uh, like Star Wars where they're on those. They look like ancient mm -hmm. ships, but they actually fly. You know, um, Their propelling and steering gear could be brought into use at uh, either end. But the all interesting question is that relating to the power by which they were propelled, um, in the early times, it seems it had been personal that the supplied personnel i think is what they're trying to say that supplied the motive power i don't think a personnel person probably directs the power um, whether used in conjunction with any mechanical contrivance 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 and matters not much matters not much matters Deb. Not much okay but in the later days this was replaced by a force which though generated by in what to us is an unknown manner operated nevertheless through definite mechanical arrangements. This force, though not yet discovered by science, more nearly approached that which Keeley in America used to handle the electric power used by Maxim. It was, in fact, an ether etheric, etheric yeah. nature. But though we are no nearer to the solution of the problem, its method of operation can be described. The mechanical arrangements no doubt differed somewhat in different vessels. Vril, or the raising of the personal vibration sufficiently to overcome the Earth's magnetic attraction, the principle of levitation, the following description is taken from an airboat in which on one occasion three ambassadors from the king who ruled over the northern part of Poseidonus made the journey to the court of the southern kingdom. Oh, this gets out there. A strong, heavy metal chest, which lay in the heavy center... Heavy metal? No. Oh, okay. ...of the boat was the generator. Thence, the force flowed through two large, flexible tubes to either end of the vessel, as well as... This kind of like my boat. As well as through eight <laughs> subsidiary tubes fixed fore and aft to the bulwarks. These had double openings pointing vertically both up and down. That kind of would be like a jet boat. It's like a jet boat. 
When the journey was about to begin, the valves of the eight bulwark tubes which pointed downwards were opened. All the other valves being closed, the current rushing through these impinged on the earth with such force as to drive the boat upwards while the air itself continued to supply the necessary fulcrum. When a sufficient elevation was reached, the flexible tube at the end of the vessel, which pointed away from the desired destination, was brought into action. While by the particle partial closing of the valves, the current rushing through the eight vertical tubes was reduced to the small amount required to maintain the elevation reached. The great volume of current being now directed through the large tube pointing downwards from the stern at an angle of about 45 degrees, <laughs> while helping to maintain the elevation provided also the great motive power to propel, bleh, propel the vessel through the air. This, you don't get to see that. Uh, can, just, a little, <laughs> just a little. The steering was accomplished by the discharge of current through this tube, for the slightest change in its direction at once caused an alteration in the vessel's course. The torpedo, or flying submarine, had double rows of strange blue lights. The vessel described as landing in Germany, um, it references a page 142 of the book that he's talking about, also had a double row of exhaust jets. In other words, a jet on a universal mountain. See, I told you it was a jet. Jet boat. But constant supervision was not required. When a long journey had to be taken, the tube could be fixed so as to not to need no handling till the destination was almost reached. Oh, it's cruise control. Did you, yeah. Did you get air in your boat ever? When you hit the nitrous button. Yeah. No. <laughs> I didn't have nitrous on my boat. We had nitrous on our boat. <laughs> and do, wow, how fast that boat go? I don't know. Mine, we, mine went 70. I hit we 70. No, we had no, they, I've, at times we Race, you know, race cars along the levee and kind of see how fast you were going. But we had no speedometer. Oh, there's no speedometer? Not that I know of. The maximum speed attained was about 100 miles an hour. They don't go very fast, do they? Mm -hmm. The course of flight never being in a straight line, but always in the form of long waves, now approaching and now receding from the Earth. And is this all assuming that the Earth is round? Uh, yeah. uh, that's, but that's another chapter. <laughs> I know. The means by which the vessel was brought to a stop on reaching its destination, and this could be done equally well in midair, was to give escape to some of the current force in the tube at the end of the boat, which pointed towards its destination. While propelling force behind was gradually reduced by the closing of the valves. The reason is still to be given for the eight tubes pointing upwards from the bulwarks. This more especially concerns the aerial warfare having so powerful a force at their disposal. The warships naturally directed the current against each other. Oh, oh, so they did jet blast. Huh? It's like your I, rooster tail from your boat. I blow on you. Did you have the rooster tail where it shot the rooster yes. water up out of the back? Yeah. Now this was apt to destroy the equilibrium of the ship so struck and to turn it upside down. Oh. Oh, well, that's okay. The, this, this, the language is kind of hard sometimes. This situation was sure to be taken advantage of by the enemy vessel to make an attack with her ram. Oh, the enemy vessel. Enemy, not enema. <laughs> there was all, there was also the danger of being precipitated to the ground unless the shutting and opening of the necessary valves were quickly attended to. 
In whatever position the vessel might be, the tubes pointing towards the earth were naturally those through which the current could be rushing, while the tubes pointing upwards should be closed. Oh, we're getting a actual... If we find one of these, we're going to be able to drive it. Oh, man. Donald Kehoe, in his book, The Flying Saucers Are Real... Great book. ...talks to one of the top engineers in NACA... NASA started in 1958. I, wrote, I put that in there because I don't know what he's referring to. Okay. This is 1950, so okay. NASA, I don't know what NACA is. Who tells him almost word for word what Scott Elliott said about the Viminos. It, the saucer, could be built with variable direction jet or rocket nozzles. The nozzles would be placed around the rim, and by changing their direction, the disc could be made to rise and descend vertically. It could, however, fly straight ahead and make sharp turns. Its direction and velocity would be governed by the number of nozzles operating, the power applied, and the angle at which they were tilted. They could be pointed towards the ground, rearwards, or in a lateral direction, or in a variant, or in various combinations. So this is Atlantis time, you know, right. again, I'll remind everybody this is... Not yesterday. Not yesterday, not... You know, not just a few hundred years ago or in the future. A disc flying level straight ahead could be turned swiftly to the left or right by shifting the angles of the nozzles or cutting off power from part of the group. This would operate in the Earth's atmosphere also in free space. This is exactly the principle on which the Atlantean Viminas were said to operate. Thus, the flying saucers seem to be an improvement upon the Viminas rather than an extension of the principle adopted by the Wright brothers and used by us today with incredibly powerful, noisy, and relatively inefficient combustion it's very engines. judgmental. He is. Well, you know what? He's, he's Certain a... other characteristics make the saucer seem to be only an interplanetary, more advanced model of the ancient Vimana, so that a positively terrifying inter inference comes to mind. Terrifying, not because of any physical harm that might come to us as a result, but terrifying because of the shattering blow, if it were true, it would give to our pride. Again, he's yeah, judgy. I, well, he's again, if judgy. we that's the other thing about finding actual flying saucers by the public. Mm -hmm. Oh, we're not, there's got, you know, we're not, you know, all that. <laughs> We're not the most important thing we're in not the universe. At the, yeah, we're not the more, most important thing in the universe. Some of this is a little bit better. For it would be admitting that tens of thousands of years ago, there existed an, on Earth a nation more advanced technically than ourselves, capable even of traveling to another planet. Scott Elliott may appear to have described a kind of flying saucer, but from where did he get his information? No one seemed to know. The book was rare and long out of print. Elliot was dead. Someone who had known him told me he had found his material in the ancient records of India and Asia and that I should try the museums and oriental libraries. But as is you, the way... Go ahead. You didn't let me finish. I don't know. But as is the way with these strange things, research is like a snowball. Set it in motion and it picks up first one thing, then another, until before you know where you are, it has gained unexpected proportions. And I kind of plugged in rabbit hole there because you go down, open up that rabbit yeah. hole because that's what happens so often. Before I had even reached the British Museum, I was 100 yards short of it. My attention was attracted by a little bookshop in Museum Street that specializes in rare and unusual books. 
On sudden impulse, I went inside and began to browse. Soon the proprietor came up to me and said, Hey, I have a book I think would interest you. Because wow. why? Yeah, I don't know. He doesn't even know him. That's yeah. really weird. He was a strange man with the most penetrating eyes I have ever seen. Eyes that seemed to reach in and examine one's innermost thoughts and to smile at what they saw. I did not recall telling him what I was looking for. I hardly knew myself. However, I took the book he offered and went on his way. I wonder if he charged him for it. It turned out to be one of James Churchward's works on the Lost Continent called The Children of Moo, M-U, not Moo, Moo. Like cow. On page 188, I found the following passage, which made me feel like I was on the right track. The author tells how on his travels in India towards the close of the last century, he was shown some ancient Hindu manuscripts, which the priests told him were copies of the ancient temple records of a mother civilization that preceded even that of India. Among them, he saw a drawing and instructions for the construction of the airship and her machinery, power, engines, etc. The power is taken from the atmosphere in a very simple, inexpensive manner. The engine is something like our present-day turbine in that it works from one chamber into another until it's finally exhausted. So this is him describing what he saw out of the ancient manuscript. Mm -hmm. He's When the engine is once started, it never stops until turned off. It will continue on if allowed to do so until the bearings are worn out. Now this thing, it isn't as advanced as we think of it as bearings. Yeah. These ships keep circling around the earth forever without once coming down until the machinery wore out. Well, that explains these flying saucers crashing all over the place. It just it wore out. Ran, it blew a bearing. They got tired. The bearing power, race went out. The power is unlimited, or rather limited only by what metals will stand. I find flights spoken of which, according to our maps, would run from 1,000 to 3,000 miles. All records relating to these airships distinctly state that they were self-moving, they propelled themselves. In other words, they generated their own power as they flew along. Independent of fuel, it seems to me, we were about 15,000 to 20,000 years behind the times. Almost word for word, that seems to tally with Scott Elliott's description of the Viminas. The engine sounds like some simple form of perpetual motion. Churchward says air was used as a propellant in something resembling a jet engine. Elliot says it was uh, etheric force, but the ancient words for air cannot connote its etheric and hidden attributes rather than the ordinary gases which we know compose the atmosphere. So there need to be no haggle over terminology. Encouraged by this, I begin to search the ancient records in an attempt to prove or disprove my hunch that flying saucers are nothing new. Deb. I was rewarded beyond all expectations. The Ramayana and Bahamaratha <laughs> are full of accounts of immense Very prehistoric good. aircraft of all shapes and sizes. Some large, some small, some jet propelled, others powered by a source beyond our ken. A power that at face value looks very like the human will itself as mentioned in the previous chapter. In the Ramayana, there is a fine description of a large vimana taking off. Yeah, when moving, uh, when morning dawned, Rama, taking the celestial car, the, the vimana, 
Haspaka had sent him by Vipishant. I think uh -huh. he does this on purpose. Vipishant stood ready to depart. Self-propelled was the car. It was large and finely painted. It had two stories and many chambers with windows. And it was draped with flags and banners. Oh, that's pretty fancy. It gave forth a melodi melodious sound as it coursed along its airway. In another translation I found, <coughs> excuse me, is translated in the Children of Mu, the Puspaka car that resembles the sun and belongs to my brother was brought by the powerful raven. That aerial and excellent car going everywhere at will is ready for the... I'm going to go get a cough drop. Okay. <coughs> that car resembling a bright cloud in the sky is in the city of Lanka. And the hero Rama answers in the Ramayana, translated by Manatha Dadut, M.A., in 1891, the poet Valmiki is held to have, to have completed the Ramayana more than 3,000 years ago. But the old records on which he based this historical data must be many times older. Do thou speedily bring the aerial car for me? That's what I asked when I asked you to get my car out of the garage for me. <laughs> Dost thou bring me my speedily <laughs> car? My, my airy car. My airy speedy car. Thereupon arrived the car. That's with Doug driving along. That's right. Adorned all over with gold, having fine upper rooms, banners, jeweled windows. And giving forth a melodious sound, having huge apartments and excellent seats. So like my car, excellent seats. Yeah. And beholding the car coming by force of will, Rama attained to an excess of astonishment. And the king, Rama, got in. And some bad things are going to happen. And the excellent car at the command, that's what you say, my excellent car. My excellent car. At the command of Rigara, rose up into the higher atmosphere. And in that car, coursing at will, Rama greatly delighted. He said, woo-hoo. Woo! Yeehaw! After a long flight, we are told that the machine landed. Well, you got to pee at some time. You do. Then Rama you should have a bathroom. Oh, that's right. It's, it's got a big advanced. apartment in it. Then An Rama apartment. himself took over control. <laughs> Being then commanded by Rama, that excellent car with a huge noise rose up in the welkin. And looking down on all sides, Rama spoke to Sita. Ooh, Sita. From here on, Rama points out that the beauty spots and places of interest both on land and on sea all the way to Ceylon. When they arrive over the city, there is great excitement and all the passengers stand up in their seats to obtain a better view. People, keep your seats till we come to a complete stop. No seatbelts in this thing, huh? Wow. Earlier in the great epic, Ravan comes across Rama's beautiful wife, the slender-waisted Sita Hello. in a forest and by guile and intrigue lures her away to where his airship is parked. Oh, the back seat of the airship. Oh, no. Then comes a vivid description of tragedy. Oh, the Mile High Club? Robin <laughs> seizes Sita, carries her into his Vimino, uh -oh. and sets off as fast as he can. Uh-oh. Romesh Dutt's translation says, and we won't need to continue, Lift the poor and helpless dame. See her in the car celestial, yoked with power, winged with speed. Golden its shape and radiance, fleet as Indra's heavenly steed. Then arose the car, celestial o'er the hill and wooded vale. 
Wow. Poor Sita. <laughs> Weeps piteously and begs Robin to let her go. He ignores her cries and gloats over her plight. What a dick. <laughs> so as she rises in the air, the poor girl cries out to nature for aid. Dim and dizzy, faint and faltering, still she sent her piercing cry, echoing through the boundless woodlands, peeling to the upper sky. What, what is this, so, a rhyme? Yeah, it's just rhyming. Yeah. <laughs> as she ascends over the forest, she calls out to them for help. Darksome woods of Panchavati, Janus Thanus, uh, Smiling Vale. Janus Thanus. Lowering trees and winding creepers. Murmur to my lord this tale. Speak to Rama that his Sita, ruthless raven, bears away. Oh, you get to keep going. Higher and higher they go. The great mountain ranges begin to unfurl beneath her. In vain she cries to them. Towering peaks and lofty mountains, wooded hills sublime, and high far extending gloomy rangers heaving to the azure sky. Help comes from a loyal old friend called Jateu, who flies up in the form of a great bird, or, you know, something shaped like a great bird, and an aerial combat takes place. Oh, this would be the first airplane attacked by a bird. <laughs> Jatayu is no match for the mighty Vimana. Oh, damn. After a few gallant head-on attacks, he falls to the ground bleeding and defeated. Apparently, there is no limit to the dastardly behavior of Ravan. Unable to wait until they land at Lanka, he drags poor Sita onto... Oh, where's this going? <laughs> no, we're good. Kids, go get something to eat in the kitchen. Sita on his lap and ravages her in the pilot's seat in, in route, so to speak. This rather suggests that the Vimana was exceptionally well-trimmed or that it possessed some kind of automatic pilot. <laughs> he directed its course toward the city of... Lanka taking Sita along with him. Experiencing the heights of delight, Ravon ravished her, taking her on his on his lap upon a serpent of virulent poison. Jesus. Viru uh, feeling better after this, <laughs> he puts on a burst of speed, like an arrow shot from a bow. bow. He, coursing the welkin, left behind the woods and trees and places of water, and coming to the boundless ocean, crossed it over to Lanka. Wow. All ends well. Well, thank God. Rama eventually catches up with the villain. I, it didn't really end that well. I mean, it well, didn't. It's just, we okay. haven't got there yet. All right. Rama eventually catches up with the villain, and an aerial battle takes place. Ravan is shot down, and Sita restored to her husband. An interesting weapon called... Indra's dart is responsible for this. <laughs> Wrapped in smoke and flaming ashes, speeding from the circled bow, pierced the iron heart of Raven, laid the lifeless hero low. Uh, that is a, a rhyme. A poem, yeah. The ancient books contain many significant descriptions of Vimana's in flight. Flaming like a crimson fire, Raven's winged courses flee. And later when Rama attacks Ravan, he describes... The mighty Vimana of Ravan coming to me, flaming like fire. Flaming. In other accounts, their beauty and luminescence is frequently messaged, mentioned. The radiant Vimana gave forth a fierce glow. The fully equipped Vimana shone brilliantly. When it sets out, its roar filled all four points of the compass. The beautiful Scar Celestial possessed the radiance of fire. Bhima riding in his Vimana of solar effulgence. 
whose noise was like the roaring of thunder clouds. It seemed there were two suns in the firmament. The whole sky was ablaze when he ascended into it, blazing with a mighty radiance, like a flame on summer night, like a comet in the sky, like a meteor encircled by a mighty cloud. It was drawn by steeds of solar ray, propelled by winged lightning. Crimson fire, brilliant fire, solar effulgence, that's a word I've never used, like a second sun, like a comet, like a meteor encircled by a mighty cloud or corona. If you have read the Flying Saucer reports, do not these sound rather familiar? Poetic though their description may seem to this mundane age, there is nothing allegorical or symbolic about the ancient Viminas. The writers invariably make a strict distinction between travel on land and travel in air. Kukra proceeded to Militha on foot, although he was able to fly through the skies of the whole earth and over the seas. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Later, this hero, hopefully I'll never have to say that again, takes on an amazing, we're just going to call it Samsa, uh, takes on an amazing aerial flight, ascending from the breast of the Kalisa Mountains. He soared up into the sky. Capable of tra traversing the higher atmosphere, he identified himself with and became the wind as he was traversing through the skies with the speed of the wind, or thought. All creatures cast up their eyes at him. As he proceeded, he seemed to fill the entire higher atmosphere with an all-pervading sound. Beholding <laughs> is coming in that matter. All the... Beholding. You just can't say that a lot. All the tribes below became filled with amazement, their eyes wide with wonder. Kukra then proceeded to the Malaya, Malaya Mountains, a long flight. He proceeded through the region of the sky firmament, which is above the region of the winds, the higher stratosphere, if we are to take it literally. Nor are the car celestials or viminas to be confused with the ordinary battle chariots or car, cars drawn by horses. The, distinguish, the distinction between them in the Sanskrit is every bit as great as that between carts and aeroplanes in our own literature. So, duh. A good example appears in the, uh -huh. I'm going to call Samsapataka Bada, uh -huh. in which a, hey, I did good, a battle uh -huh. chariot and a Vimana are mentioned, and they're commonly, common beauty compared. When drawn into battle like a car, Celestial that is born along the sky, and like Kukra's car celestial, this chariot could move in a circular course or move upwards, backwards, and dives kind of a dives kind of movement. There is no mistaking the meaning of this passage. The writer knew the difference between Viminas and chariots as well as we know the difference between planes and tanks. Can you beat that into the ground any harder? It's done. Now it's flying saucers before the flood. Oh, good. You know, the earth's been destroyed. I've had this discussion with Corey at work. And you know, I thought it was for, I, I thought we've, we've been burnt into the ground and re, you know, the, the human race or, you know, life mm -hmm. has been completely destroyed and reborn four times. I thought it was four. He says 12. Oh, well. You know, so, you know, waiting for that nuclear attack. So do you ever see that, uh, before after people that that show was a documentary it said uh -huh. like all the people are gone for whatever reason i've heard about it and it it shows what happens to the cities 
and how long it takes for them to just literally just crumble and decompose into the ground and nothing's left of them, you know? So, and then you'd throw, you know, some volcanic this and, you know, all the weather. And so, yeah, this is, we assume that Atlantis was, whatever happened with Atlantis was one of those events, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Flying saucers before the flood. Lest you feel tempted to exclaim concerning the Viminas, there is no such animal. Oh, he doesn't believe. George, you don't believe. No, he's saying lest you feel tempted to exclaim. Oh, okay. I shall now offer more detailed evidence, okay, for the existence of these prehistoric flying saucers. I say saucers and not airplanes because the principle which held them aloft had nothing to do with wings. They were sustained entirely by the force they admitted. A streamlined plane set at an angle of four degrees to the line of flight played no part in it. They were true wingless aircraft, so are flying saucers. We are all very tempted to measure out the length and breadth and the depth of what we are willing to believe and circumscribe it with a magic circle containing many violent and often none too polite incantations prohibiting the approach of any alien idea evil spirit or malicious genie who threatens the security of our little flock of cherished notions he's just so and there he goes again in the circle in that circle for good measure we set up bacon's three idols which he aptly called the idol of the cave the idol of the marketplace and the idol of the theater an unholy trinity whose collective name is personal prejudice wow these yeah. idols have always formed a triple deity for humanity and will probably continue to do so until this planet reverts to a state of matter quite unknown to modern science whose exponents through excessive worship at their shrine may inadvertently reduce our earth to that primal state several billion years before it was originally intended it's easy to dismiss all the ancient sanskrit descriptions of flying saucers as mere myth until one has read them but the ancient writers made a scrupulous distinction between myth, which they called Deva, and factual record, which they call Manusa. In the Manusa accounts, the most elaborate details for Vimana building are set down. The Samarangana <laughs> Sutradhara. Sutradhara. The Gold Sutradhara says that they were made of light material with a strong, well-shaped body. Iron, copper, and lead were used in their construction. They could fly for great distances and were propelled by air. A hint is then given concerning the propulsion by the statement that they had fire and mercury at the bottom. The, oh no. The Samaranjgana and the Sutradhara devote 230 stanzas to the principles of building Viminas and their uses in peace and war. I'm sorry. Couldn't they just have done a YouTube video? <laughs> they were very maneuverable and could attack anything in the air or on the ground. The author, like Scott Elliott, gives them three principal movements. That of ascending vertically, cruising thousands of miles. Lastly, halting and descending. They move so fast that they could hardly be heard from the ground. In the Vedic Brahmanas, description is given of the Agnahorta, Vamana with its two propelling fires, the Avanaya and the Garapatya. This the curious statement is then made that the pilot offers milk to the three Agnes or fires. 
Okay, that's weird. <laughs> it is obviously a blind, for the secrets of their power were jealously guarded in case they came to be wrongly used. The Sanskrit says, manufacturing details of the Viminas is withheld for the sake of secrecy, not out of ignorance. The details of constructions are not mentioned, for it should be known that, were they publicly disclosed, the machines would be wrongly used. And this kind of dovetails into the, you know, what we do now. Mm -hmm. The reason why the public can't, we, if this technology is real, everybody gets it, it's going to be ugly. Yeah, so this confirms Scott Elliott's statement that uh, they were never mass-produced like our modern aircraft. In another place, in the same work, we are told, strong and durable must the body be made, like a great flying bird of light material. Inside it, one must place the mercury engine with its iron heating apparatus beneath. By means of the power latent in the mercury, what sets the driving whirlwind in motion a man sitting inside may travel a great distance in the sky in a most marvelous manner. Marvelous manner. Marvelous. It just sounds so nice. Similarly, by using the prescribed processes, one can build a Vimana as large as the temple of the god in motion. Four strong mercury containers must be built into the interior structure, Deb. When these have been heated by controlled fire from iron containers, the Viminon develops thunder power through the mercury and at once becomes like a pearl in the sky. The Tibetan books, the Tanjua and the Kanjua, also contain many references to marvelous prehistoric flying machines, which they often call pearls in the sky. I had a letter from California recently from some friends who had observed a flying saucer for about six minutes. They wrote, it was the color and luster of mother of pearl. In fact, it looked just like a huge oval pearl flying silently along the sky. You know, the circular UFOs and the orbs are kind of, they're not a new thing, but they're becoming a little more mainstream discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have replied asking them to get a hold of the copy of the Tantua, if they could, to make their own comparisons. The Samar account makes it perfectly clear that the full details must be withheld in the interest of security, to use a phrase beloved by moderns. The ancients, however, took a less selfish and somewhat more moral view. They kept their secrets because they foresaw the terrible uses the Viminos could be put in to put to in war. Fears well justified in the Dayton Wars, when whole cities were wiped out and armies destroyed by the airborne Astra and Brahma weapons. Getting ugly outside. The ancient Aryans knew well how the element fire could be used in war. It can be seen as can be seen from their astral weapons, which include among a li the list of projectiles or sapasapaharamara, literally throwing out weapons, sikharastra, a flame belching missile, avidistra, a missile of illusionary powers, and the prasvapana, which causes sleep. Also, the arrow of sleep, some kind of gas projectile. Ooh, that's weird. They're using some. Their weapons are bizarre, you know, cause. It'll pretty violent. <laughs> Ganavastra, a weapon of Vishnu the Destroyer. Samvarda, a smokescreen or fog producer. Sara, a missile of the sun god. Four kinds of Agna Astras, or fiery missiles, which travel in sheets of flame and produce thunder. Lastly, the terrible dart of Indra, 
which could slay 10,000 men with its thunderbolt. It was shot from a circle bow, which sounds like a piece of ordnance. Of course. Then came the magical weapons controlled by will and sound. The Satyakarti, the Kamarupaka, <laughs> taking shape according to one's You're will. you butchering this. Somebody's know, listening so to this going, don't they know that it's the... The Kamaruchi, acting according to one's wish. Bahara, the thunderbolt, which required mantra, mantras or sound to operate. Baruchi, a fiery weapon. That's it. It's got some references yeah, there. The Samar is sufficient to dispel any lingering doubt that the Viminas were a product of poetic imagination or an allegorical account of divinities and certain cosmic forces. The description of the Mercury engine is intriguing. What exactly does the power latent in the Mercury mean? Could they have known how to release the fundamental energy contained in heavy metals and used it as a highly effective, efficient type of jet propulsion? Dr. Mead Lane of San Diego, California had never heard of ancient Viminus until I drew his attention to them. But long beforehand, he had written that he believed that a certain type of flying saucer, a very ancient type, propels itself by the atomic disintegration of air while traveling in the atmosphere and of metal when in space. A little later, I shall present evidence to suggest that the ancients knew more than we imagine in that line. Perhaps not nuclear fission, but some other aspects of atomic power which could be turned to peaceful or warlike uses with devastating results. The Samar says a controlled fire was applied to the mercury. That thunder power was then developed. Farther on, it says, moreover, it says, moreover, if this iron engine with properly welded joints be filled with mercury and the fire be conducted to the upper part, it develops power with the roar of a lion. Now, fire in the ancient words, works does not always mean the fire of combustion. The esoteric book lists 49 fires, most of which seem to refer to various electrical and magnetic phenomena. The controlled fire in this case might possibly refer to an ordinary furnace, although it is difficult to see how the formation of oxide of mercury is going to provide jet propulsion. Other things would have to have this thing lift like electromagnetic field of some kind or something. More likely, the fire in question is one of the electrical fires now more or less familiar to science. The Samar then continues with a straightforward engineer's account of the Vimina's versatility and gives performance figures, which our craft designer might envy. The subdivisions of the Vimina's movements are slanting, vertical ascent, Vertical descent, forwards, backwards, normal ascent, normal descent. Progress, progressing over long distances through proper adjustment of the working parts, which gives it perpetual motion. The strength and durability of these machines depend on the material used. Following here are some of the aerial car's main qualities. It can be invisible. That's something that's, that's come up recently. Handy. About, they look like, you know, they're shooting, you know, this, okay craft or shooting off quickly and disappearing, but they could be, you know, well, there's interdimensional, but they could maybe go invisible. It can carry passengers. It can also be made small and compact. 
it can move in silence. So if you got people inside, if you get small, what happens to the people if you get small and compact and like get I crushed? Dream, like I dream of Jeannie when she went in her bottle. Oh, and she got really small. I'd freak out. Oh, there's no way I'd be able to live <laughs> in that bottle. The strength and, or wait, excuse me, if sound can be used, there must be great flexibility of all the moving parts, which must be made of faultless workmanship. It must last a long time. It must be well covered in. It must not become too hot, too stiff, nor too soft. Yeah, that it can be moved by tunes and rhythms. In fact, there seems to be nothing it cannot do. It surpasses a helicopter in move maneuverability. It can move silently without the helicopter's rending uproar. It is so maneuverable that it can hover accurately a few measured inches off the ground. Yudzisthiva's <laughs> Vimana had remained at the height of four fingers' breadth from the surface of, surface of the earth. As an alternative method of propulsion, it can be driven solely by the power of sound, tunes, and rhythms. It also seems capable of appearing and disappearing at will, owing to some particularly clever optical illusions. All these things can also be done by flying saucers. Very well. Supposing that a forgotten civilization did once know how to build a primitive form of flying saucer here on Earth, you're not going to tell us, we trust, that they go to or come from other planets. There is a limit to what we can believe. Personally, I shall do no such thing. But the Samar will. And the Samar, unfortunately, is one of those documents designated Manusa or strictly factual. Strictly and factually, it makes the simple statement. By means of these machines, humans, beings can fly in the air and heavenly beings can come down to earth. It's just right there. In other words, the ancients were quite accustomed to receiving men from other planets, even in those days. Another passage states bluntly that some Viminas could ascend to the solar region and that thence out and beyond to the stellar regions, which means that some Viminas were built to traverse the solar system or even the galaxy itself. That's amazing. Yeah, so we stumbled through that episode. Oh, There's that a lot rough. of big a lot of big names, a lot of big names in there. Those are some hard names. Thanks everyone for if, if you managed to hang in with us for that entire uh, uh, 53 minutes. Um, we're again, we're just trying to you know describe the history of, you know, what's going on and what how we can relate what's happening today to possibly what went on then. So whether you believe it or not, it's a it's an interesting story. Thanks for listening to the the latest episode of the Alien Probe Podcast. We welcome comments, questions, or requests to alienprobepodcast at gmail.com. Visit us on Facebook. Check out our website at alienprobe.net. Twitter and Instagram at alienprobepod. YouTube and Rumble. Like and subscribe. Thanks, Deb, Thank once you. again. I appreciate it, and uh, we will see you next time.